0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. This program
1: is being made and broadcast on the lands of the Kulin Nation. 3CR recognises that sovereignty was never ceded and so-called Australia remains an unresolved crime scene with no legal rights and no jurisdiction. We stand in solidarity with Elders past and present and emerging in continuing resistance of the settler colonial state. Good afternoon. You're listening to Uprise Radio on 3CR with Jackson and James. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon, Jackson. And
2: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.
1: And that was Fuel by Metallica, an oldie but a goldie. Um, and today we're talking a little bit about the recent oil price crash and, you know, just the, ram- the environmental ramifications of this crisis that is having so many impacts uh, around the country. Uh, But before we get into that discussion, I just wanted to touch base. A few weeks ago, we spoke to people from the Rent Strike Australia and we mentioned that the Andrews government had proposed new legislation, which was then put to Parliament a few days later. And unfortunately, one of the key parts of that legislation was, while it banned evictions for this period, it said anyone engaging in willing non-payment of rent can be evicted. So that really scuppered. Uh, all protections for people who um, were rent striking in solidarity, particularly. I mean, if you can prove extreme hardship, you wouldn't be evicted. So you had had to prove you had no savings and very little income and all those things, and then they would protect you from eviction. But anyone else striking in solidarity, no protection. So if you were planning to strike, I wouldn't do it at the moment if you can pay rent because you could be evicted. Um, Well, that's up to you,
2: I guess. You should probably just... Make sure you're informed of all the
3: facts, I
1: guess. Yeah, and, you know, Rent Strike um, Australia has some really good info about the Victorian situation up on their Facebook page and they've also formed a new union, the Renters and Housing Union Victoria. I also just wanted to say to our faithful listeners that we are finally, after much tidiness, putting up some podcasts. Woo! Cheering in the background. I want to thank James for all of his hard work getting these podcasts together. But, you know, for those of you who have missed um, episodes, we've got ones up there on, you know, the xenophobia in China, Morrison's War on Welfare, Extinction Rebellion before it was cool, a great story about Save Footscray Park, um, which had a great uh, example of a community campaign. We're talking about draconian job service providers, fully automated weapon systems, AI and the future of warfare, Uh, climate change and leadership in Australia and around the world. There's a whole lot of great stuff that you can go back and have a listen to, and I implore you... That episode,
2: the Save Footscray Park episode, saved the park, I believe, that that episode.
1: Yeah, it was mainly our episode, not the hard work of those hundreds of community uh, volunteers and activists that did, in fact, stop Melbourne Victory building Uh, their eyesore of a training pitch uh, in that beautiful park. It's at 3cr.org.au forward slash Uprise Radio and have a listen. But first today, we're gonna hear a little bit from Adam Bant about the Green New Deal that the Greens are pushing for at the moment in the aftermath of COVID-19. So here is Adam talking to News Breakfast on ABC.
0: In which direction do you want to take the Greens? I want Australia to have a Green New Deal, which involves thats a government-led plan of investment and action to grow new jobs and industries as we tackle the climate challenge and the inequality crisis. So I want um, to see Australia become a renewable energy superpower, a place that uh, you might bring your business to from other countries because we offer you cheap, clean electricity as we urgently phase out coal. We're seeing at the moment the um, climate emergency hitting Australia really hard. And I just heard you know, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, and congratulations to him on his reappointment, um, talking about jobs. Um, what he didn't talk about was the 900,000 jobs that are reliant on a healthy tourism industry, for example, that's currently being devastated, or our agricultural industry that's being smashed by the drought. If we don't get the climate crisis under control, then Australia is in a lot of trouble, and that's why I'll be pushing for um, a, a jobs-led Green New Deal in this country. So that was Adam
2: Bant on February 5th on ABC News Breakfast talking about a Green New Deal. I think that those kind of calls and the impact of what Adam was saying, I think feel even more important now as well, don't you think, Jackson?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting debate about what's going to happen as a result of everything we're going through. I think it's, you know, it's really good that, you know, I commend and the Greens for trying to move the conversation back to this looming uh, climate catastrophe or this already begun climate catastrophe. Uh, I think some of the language they've been using, like, you know, if you, if you feel like COVID is really uncomfortable, the climate catastrophe is going to be even worse. And I think that that's pretty accurate. Like they're more profound and um, long term threats to our way of life, you know, all across the globe I think that's arguable but I think unfortunately here and elsewhere in the world in the western world particularly we've got leadership that are ideologically um, threaded to a kind of neoliberal approach to running uh, the countries that they're in charge of and already you can hear the language from Morrison and Frydenberg about how to pay for the you know reasonably you know, begrudging, I can say, reasonably generous um, support, fiscal support they've given to people during COVID-19 and one feels like the way they're going to pay for that is by slashing um, other aspirations, you know, particularly around clean energy. I mean, already in Victoria, while a lot of people have been patting Dan Andrews on his, on the back for the approach to schools, I mean, they secretly tore up The moratorium, or they very quietly tore up the moratorium on new gas exploration. I know that on the surf coast at Anglesey and Aries Inlet, um, residents have been disturbed to see a floating uh, gas um, exploration rig suddenly appear, uh, moving between the Twelve Apostles and Anglesey, uh, looking for new uh, gas fields to exploit. Uh, I know that um, earlier in the week, Dirt Radio did some really interesting reporting on the Andrews agreement to log old growth forests, you know, that's happened quietly. And I think there's just been, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, yeah, what aspirations and what commitments will be given up to pay for the cost of COVID-19 when it comes to the environment. I think that,
2: you know, there are, I think a couple of different things to take from all of that. Uh, you know, one could say that really there, those things can go hand in hand while we certainly would want to have uh You know, you can have a green-led recovery of the economy and still the Victorian government and federal government may do some things that we wouldn't agree with, i.e. logging old-growth forests and things like that. And certainly that wouldn't be part of the proposal that I think we would put forward or or what Adam was talking about before. Because I don't think that that doesn't preclude a green-led economic stimulus from being a part of rebuilding... Um, not not just the economy in in a you know broad sense, but you know giving hope for you know retraining workers and and you know really trying to do the work that should have already been happening. I think that it's interesting. I was actually pondering this the other day that Australia and New Zealand look like they're going to come out of the uh, you know COVID crisis in the, at least its initial phase uh, before uh, most other kind of you know, quote unquote, developed countries. So, you know, that really does present an opportunity for, you know, business to come here, I I guess in some way of what Adam was saying, you know, in all kinds of aspects, really, there's uh, a government with a vision or people with a vision could look at really trying to capitalize on this moment. I think that we want to talk about the green aspect of that. But just as an aside, you know, you could look at things like the NBA could come and, um, you know, do the rest of their season in in Australia. You know, they have come over in quarantine for two weeks and then they, um, you know, have their games across Australian, New Zealand basketball stadiums. And while that might seem not that interesting for people that are not interested in basketball, the kind of, you know, add-on effects from that to things like tourism and hospitality sectors and things like that, which are one of the uh, biggest hits from the COVID crisis, could actually, you know, be something that would be, um, you know, important for the, not the economy as this, you know, amorphous thing, but for actual real people.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the opportunity for some really innovative approaches to governance and organizing society. It's going to be interesting to see how this revelation about working from home is going to affect you know traffic and the daily grind and the, you know the way that we work, the way companies approach the demands on their start on their staff. I think there's a really strong tension though between allowing people more flexibility and this inevitable encroach onto private and leisure time by work. But it's kind of like there's these dual options appearing everywhere. You know, something I was really interested in in the last week was the crash of the oil price. You know, and um, it's quite remarkable that oil producers were having to pay other people to take their produced oil off them. You know, pay them up to thirty dollars a barrel to get rid of the oil that they had already produced and had nowhere to store. And you know, as a result, there's now one hundred and sixty million barrels of oil sitting in tankers, super tankers, offshore. And funnily enough, it's it's about 10 years since the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's all these environmental risks from this type of behaviour that's occurring. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, a former energy minister of Saudi Arabia, uh, Sheikh Yamani, he had this great quote where he said, you know, the stone age didn't come to an end, not because we had a lack, not because we had a lack of stones and the oil age will come to an end, not because we have a lack of oil. You know, it will come to the end because we have better technologies to use. But the amount of pressure, you know, the amount already Australia and the US have announced that they're going to stockpile huge amounts of oil, uh, you know, while there's this really low price, you know, like in the way they're doing on these offshore tankers. They're going to stockpile as much as they can. And the reality is that if the fossil fuel users, as we all are as nation states, burned all of the fuel they have currently in storage, which is their intention. That's why they're storing it up, you know, you can kiss goodbye two degrees of warming, you know, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge commitment to burn all the stored fuel. You know, we need to be getting rid of disposing of that stored fuel, not planning to burn it, but the resistance, you know, from the powers that that be to the chain, to the, to a change, to a just transition to clean energy. I mean, I agree with you. This is a great opportunity, but have you heard anything from the people currently holding the reins of power that they are interested in a ju- in a just transition
2: no <laughs> I think <laughs> that we're we're probably more likely to hear something from you know the Victorian government and Dan Andrews but like you said the only things that have happened is politics behind closed doors where mm. these you know things that would otherwise receive a lot of potential backlash from you know, the media and everyday people from protesters, people that campaign on these issues, have been, you know, more silenced and, you know, so I guess cynically you could say they've taken this opportunity to reopen, um, relook at, you know, mining, exploration, logging and things like that. But I don't know. I mean, I think that it is an interesting kind of thing to monitor. I'm not sure where is the... I don't think we can really answer this right now, but I think it's something to return to in future shows. Like, where is the Victorian government and Dan Andrews sitting in relation to the rest of the nation and the rest of federal politics? You know, like earlier this week, there on May Day, there was an article in the Age talking about Victoria is going to tap into Chinese Communist Party's one point five trillion dollar Belt and Road Initiative as a way of rebuilding the Victorian economy. Well, I don't know how much the know Victorian state government is intending on getting from that I mean I think that that is a very um, fraught kind of thing to get involved in 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 my opinion I mean I think that it's not as necessarily um, you know cloak and daggers sort of mystery as America and perhaps some like anti-Chinese figures would have us believe but states don't just give out infrastructure and money for no return Mm. but I, i guess my point is like what is how is victoria seems to be looking to govern outside of the federal politics in a way you know that they're kind of setting themselves out to be quite different to the rest of the um the country which uh is interesting you know i think that we are really kind of seeing the way that Perhaps we might feel instinctively that we're governed by a federal uh, parliament, but in reality, through this crisis, we have seen that a lot of our decisions in Victoria are actually being done by the state, not by the federal government.
1: Yeah, it's been quite humorous to me, the attempts of the federal education minister, Dan Tian, to rein in states that aren't following the MAD uh, must-return-to-school uh, line because in every other, you know, Particularly around budget time, and every other year that I can remember, uh, whenever asked about state schools and funding for state schools and policy around state schools, the federal government normally says, "Oh, that's a state's issue. That's a state's issue. Schools. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't fund them as much as we fund private schools." But all of a sudden, when it comes to you know this ideological difference, I mean, it was incredible timing, wasn't it? Last weekend, when uh, Dantian went on Insiders and said you know, that Dan Andrews is taking a sledgehammer to the public school system and all this stuff. And then the very same day, there was an announcement of an outbreak uh, of COVID-19 at a, at a primary school in Epping. And, you know, just as, a, as an announcement too, for, for, for our listeners that live in the west of Melbourne, there's been a fairly significant outbreak um, in Braybrook at a, a meatpacking place called Cedar Meats, which is actually in the news earlier in the year too for some uh, really problematic... Um, animal welfare issues which is obviously a pretty oxymoronic idea um animal welfare issues at an abattoir but you know they do they do exist and uh yeah, so it seems like they also are also
2: given given money to the uh, labor party as well
1: interesting they're
2: a, yeah. a, a donor to the labor party
1: yeah that is interesting it was interesting too that the 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 labor party or the chief chief medical officer brett sutton uh, seemed to indicate that they were aware of the outbreak since kind of early April, but it wasn't until May that uh, it was announced to the public, and he said something along the lines of, oh, it's a company's responsibility to make the public aware, which is, again, just an interesting abdication of responsibility. You know, you would think that uh, if the government was had that knowledge, why would they not make it public? And it does raise questions yeah. about yeah. the relationships between donors and government, doesn't it?
2: I think that hopefully, um, you know, perhaps moving slightly away from this. So I think that, um, you know, what we hopefully kind of seeing with the environmental impact and questions is we have been moving really closely still within this mindset that it's about individuals, you know, and I guess even with the the example before about oil, uh, it's not, you know, individuals driving their car is not going to have any impact on these things. Like you said, you know, it's the huge oil reserves and, you know, it's for projects like mining and uh, things that are using up these masses of, of resources. There was a report by um, the ACF this week that talked about um, the amount of water used by uh, mining companies. And the amount used in Australia was the amount of the whole state of Queensland plus all of Sydney. So, you know that's that's it's ridiculous and, and i think that that's where you know a few of those individual people deciding not to you know to have shorter showers or whatever it may be we still are in this mindset that that is going to make a difference and i hope that the kind of you know the impact of COVID and the kind of time that we've had to kind of see the impact of capitalism on our everyday lives and on the systems and structures around us make people I don't think not necessarily not aware. I think that maybe it gives people a thing to go, you know what, I do need to do something about this. I can't, I need to spend an hour a week or, you know, or maybe more or whatever that I can actually try to make a change here because, like you said at the start, it's not going to be, if, we, if we're concerned about what how our lives have been impacted here, we're going to be very concerned when, uh, you know, the full effect of climate change affects us.
1: It's a really interesting point you make about, you know, the way COVID-19 has perhaps sharpened the minds of people as to their role in a healthy society. And it's not about, you know, that hour that you're describing a week, yeah, it's not about shortening your shower or, you know, running your car off off chip, off potato oil or something. You know, it's better off spent, um, you know, speaking loudly and getting on the streets and combating, you know, these organisations that continually put profit ahead of people I mean, it's take the aviation industry. You know, we have this we have this incredible moment in history where all the planes are grounded, and you know we know that international travel is a huge uh, uh, carbon gas emitter. You know, just as is international trade, which, you know, hasn't slowed down as much but has been curtailed by these border closures, you know, the container ships going back and forth, taking, you know, trinkets for Christmas all over all over the country. Like, these are massive, massive polluters. And why shouldn't there? with all the technology we have that's been revealed, all of this ability to, to quickly speak to people wherever they are, to get their input, whatever you're doing, why are we not having it before the government gives hundreds of millions of dollars to these airlines that are running on a, you know, a bee's dick of, 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 of profit. You know, they, they, they can only survive three months of, of no action without completely going under. So we're, we're funding to get them back in the air. But maybe we need to have a, a really constructive community conversation about what the value of international travel is and, and how often we should be doing it as, as nations moving forward. You know, do we need this to be something that everybody does every year? Or can we focus more on, you know, tur- tourism in our own countries? And, you know, thinking about, I don't know just is, is it an industry that needs to exist at the size that it's existed previously and and why can't we have more open communication between government and citizenry considering the technology now exists like is it is it okay anymore to just have one election every four years you know why can't we we have more input on more issues that affect us more often and i think and i think these are valid that questions. that's exact i, I
2: think, think that's, that's the exact same thing though it's putting the blame onto Uh, everyday people that want to go on a holiday and see the world and I think that you know that that kind of argument is still not going to affect rich people who have their own private planes who can do whatever they like you know they can cross borders whenever they please so to put restrictions on working class people on everyday people to say you know maybe you shouldn't be going overseas that often you should be traveling around Australia or whatever you know that's a it's a luxury that not many people get to um, explore anyway but when those are due you know, we should be able to go and see different cultures around the world and experience that. I think that for those that are lucky enough to do that, it's an amazing experience that is different from travelling in your own country. And I think that that is a kind of... I, I think that's the same thing of blaming everyday people. Well, maybe... You, said we, you know, we can look at things, like you said, about uh, manufacturing and, and transporting goods and things. So there was an article, I'm not sure if it was the Saturday paper or, or the monthly Um last week that was talking about why our super It was a saturday last week's saturday paper actually why our supermarket shelves are actually empty and it's this thing that you know all the supermarkets now they don't have any stock at the back you know the days are gone where you could say oh can i get do you have any of this out the back you know they don't have anything at the back they have a small amount of stock that lasts you know for a, a couple of weeks essentially and the reason that they can't get a lot of these things is not you know, they might grow, say, a, um, you know, a jar of tomatoes or pasta sauce, or whatever. The tomatoes made all be grown and, and produced in Australia, but we don't have anywhere that makes the lids in Australia or, or the, the, tin, the tins or anything like that. They're all made overseas. So we don't actually, we have this production line of needing to import all lids and plastic containers and tins from overseas when, you know, we used to have factories of being able to make these in Australia. So I think if we were able to close some of those um, production lines, and, you know, I think one of the things that the green economy does talk about is the circular economy and, you know, the circular economy should be existing within a small space as well that, you know, we can grow those tomatoes here, we can make the tins or the jars here, and then they can also be recycled here. You know, I think that that's the kind of thing that we need to be looking about, not the um, everyday movement of, people trying to get some freedom out of the um, constraints of capitalism.
1: All right, that's a really good point. And in retrospect, it's a poor example to tell people not to fly overseas. Perhaps a better one would be that, you know, executives don't need to go to different cities every week to talk to someone about a hedge fund investment portfolio, you know, that more things could be done over the phone. There could be less Unless, as you say, movement of goods that could be made locally. You know, I think you know shipping containers and all of that, you know, largesse that happens in the business community of jet setting around, you know, for very little reason. You know, that keeps all of the four and five star hotels afloat because no one can actually afford to spend thousands of dollars a night to sustain those things. They're all put on business cards, all of that stuff. So maybe it's about those type of changes rather than, as you say, limiting working people from getting place to place. I think that's a very good point. And I think, yeah, local manufacturing would make a massive difference. I think, I suppose what the shame is, you know, I've been reading some reports about, you know, this crashing the oil price, you know, while it is an opportunity to move away from this resource. And you now maybe we don't have time this episode, but I think there's a lot of geopolitical um, ramifications of the end of oil as well, obviously in the middle East and, and elsewhere, but this plummeting oil price is really, meaning a lot of investment is being pulled out of things like electric vehicles because all of a sudden the cost of running, you know, petrol cars is, is plummeting, you know, so there's going to be more and more incentive to use um, fossil fuels in the short term because they're so cheap. And I think that's something to be aware of, you know, that the, the logic of capitalism doesn't take environmental impacts into account.
2: But it's still it's possible, yes. I think you know perhaps from that example, and it seems in Australia been quite slow to take up, um, you know, a different types of vehicles, perhaps. But um, you know, I think the uh, solar solar take up in Australia has been quite big and, and particularly, you know, even over the, the last, I think, um, March and April have been some of the biggest months of, of solar installation um, ever in Australia because particularly in Victoria and um, I'm not sure, I think there's a couple other states that have schemes as well where people can essentially get, um, you know, huge rebates from from state government. Now, so they're barely out of pocket themselves. You know, South Australia is, is almost, I think, completely on green energy the act is you know so even though i think we spoke about this a few episodes ago even though we kind of uh we've got a federal government that isn't trying to transition to this green energy or you know a green future it's actually happening behind them anyway and you know the the energy uh, companies are wanting to see if they can actually put in uh, like a kill switch in south australia so that they can Turn off people's solar because they're worried that it's basically everyone has solar in 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 Adelaide and through South Australia. So you know, I guess they're they're wondering what the point of their company is really. They are
1: redundant. You know, exactly. there's so much power being generated from all those household roofs that they're probably you know building enough base load power, and and now that they have storage with their giant battery. I mean, it's a model that we could pass on. Look. It it doesn't feel like it. It's all happened very quickly, but we're actually running out of time. Good to talk to you again, James, and I'll talk to you in a fortnight's time. Thanks,
3: everyone. We're running out of oil. It's going to be hard to live if we don't find some alternatives to oil. Because pretty much everything we do. Oil. Let me list some of the things made with oil. There's computers, light like bulbs, toothpaste, cat food, dog food, Our food, Microwaves, umbrellas, blankets, glasses, crayons, fridges, pharmaceuticals, houses, trucks, and boats, and planes, and Rows and clothes, and phones, and shops, and farms, and your mum. If we don't find a solution, we won't have them anymore, because pretty soon there will be. We don't need cars. Alright, actually maybe now we do. But we could also walk, ride bicycles, and use horses instead of oil and coal and uranium. Use clean, renewable resources. Like the sun. It has The future of energy is in predominantly biological processes, so be a clean, renewable investor. Use and value clean, renewable, clean, renewable, clean, renewable services and resources.